Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is intellectual property and why is it important? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a free market standpoint, or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so today we're going to discuss the importance of intellectual property protection with our research fellow, Bartlett Clellan. Bartlett, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. We're glad you could have, we could have you here in person as opposed to on the telephone. Always exciting to be back home. So the annual World IP Day recognition is this coming April 26th. We're recording this on April 22nd. And so April 26th is World IP Day. And yes, I know that World IP Day is probably not featured on most of our listeners' calendars. But stay with us here. We'll see if we can explain why we think it's good that the importance of intellectual property is recognized at least once a year. So first of all, let's talk about what intellectual property is. So we're talking about patents, copyrights, trademarks, and then there's also something called trade secrets. And those are the major categories of intellectual property. One of the interesting things about intellectual property is that it is explicitly outlined in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, where Congress is charged with creating a system that protects the rights of creators and inventors. We call that the Copyright Clause. Now, if you take a traditional sort of conservative or free market view of the Constitution, it's a big deal to remember that the Constitution does not create rights. We don't get our rights from the Constitution. Rather, what the Constitution does is it recognizes pre-existing rights and it tasks government with protecting those rights. So just as your right to freedom of religion doesn't come from the Constitution, just as your right to free speech does not come from the Constitution, intellectual property rights also don't come from the Constitution. And this is something that I'd like to uh, tell some of my libertarian friends who are not necessarily big fans of intellectual property, that our Constitution views it as a pre-existing right, just like it does all of the other pre-existing rights. Now, what do we mean when we talk about like a pre-existing right. It's generally understood that workers own their output. A worker has a right to own their output. And that's why when you, when you work a job, when you have a job, when you earn wages, uh, you're selling your labor. You own your own labor and you sell it and the fruits of your labor belong to you. Now, because of taxes and things like that, not, not as much of the fruit of our labor belongs to us as we would like. Uh, but you have a right as a worker to own your own output. So for a carpenter, if, if you're roofing a house or something like that, that's your output. You have a right to sell the fact that you can roof a house. Well, if you're a poet or an inventor, then your output is your creativity. It's your invention. And so if a carpenter or a bricklayer or a ditch digger have the right to own the fruit of their labor, their output, then why would a poet or a songwriter or an inventor or a tinkerer or a scientist not have the right to own their output, the fruit of their, their labor as well. So there's a sense in which property, intellectual property rights 
are just an inherent part of just individual sovereignty and your right to own yourself and to own the fruit of your creation. Now, most free market folks understand that property rights are the foundation of a market economy. You can't really have markets if you don't have property rights. You can't enter into a contract, for instance, something Bartlett knows more about than I do since he actually went to law school and I didn't. But you can't enter into a contract if it's not clear who owns something, right? Or who has a right to buy something. And so you can't really have markets without property rights. And so you couldn't really have markets in creative goods if you didn't have intellectual property rights. The other important thing about intellectual property rights is that it incentivizes creation. And this is probably, I don't know, Bart, I don't know if you agree, but I think this is probably the most important thing about intellectual property, that it, it incentivizes and rewards creation and invention. Exactly. And, and uh, it resonates with me more deeply than the, the natural rights argument. Mm. This is the underpinning uh, of, of much of our economy, and increasingly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've talked about this in the past, and we've made this argument. And I think our argument gets doubled down on every few years as we have an increasing amount of the economy that is a knowledge economy. Yeah, exactly. And you said knowledge economy. I think that's important. In fact, that's the next point I wanted to get to. I think everybody understands we have a knowledge economy right now. Uh, The United States and most developed countries are not where things are actually manufactured. They're where things are invented and created and designed. So if you're going to have a successful knowledge economy, you need a system that encourages the creation of new information and new knowledge but also that incentivizes the dissemination of that knowledge. And I think that, that our intellectual property system, the patent system, the copyright system, do a really good job of doing both of those things. Because the patent system, I guess the genius of the patent system, is that it requires you to disclose your invention, right? You don't get to just hide it away. Uh, I think a lot of times critics of intellectual property think somehow that the alternative to intellectual property is just all this free knowledge laying around all over the place, right? Whereas if, if, if you didn't have the disclosure requirement of the patent system, everything would be trade secrets. That's right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And then you really wouldn't have it because the only That's way exactly you right. protect a trade secret is by keeping it a keeping secret. Keeping it a secret. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it, it's really, I mean, this is, I don't think this is emphasized enough that yes, the patent gives you a property right and it gives you an exclusive ability to control that thing that you have created or invented for a limited amount of time. But in exchange, it requires you to disclose and describe the invention. So other people can start learning from your invention the moment you file the patent application. Well, and in fact, and I think this is the point you're getting to, and, and um, so I hope I don't steal your thunder, mm-hmm. but the last one was an intended tee-up. I'm just here yes, for that. Yes, yes, okay, great, exactly. Uh, but that once an idea is out there, you can do variations on an idea so long as you don't do the exact same idea. Yeah. So... It, you you might have a uh, a better mousetrap to pick the old cliche. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you'd never thought about catching a mouse before, but because you you read that patent, you say, oh, that's interesting. You put cheese on this little thing, and it steps on it and snaps, and and you say, well, wait, I I can imagine something where the cage door drops behind the mouse, and that would be more efficient. And in fact, uh, I know there's a big market for people who love pet mice, and yep. they would rather capture them. You can enter into that market. There's no prohibition. So mm-hmm. this the argument that because there's a patent and then everything stops. Well, that, that it's simply not true. It yeah. stops from making that exact same thing, but not for that exact same end result. You could conceivably design an improved version of something even before the original thing gets its patent granted. 
That, that's you know, true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's because right. you because you have that you have that um, description and that disclosure of the invention. And listen, marketing, not marketing, marketability mm. is all all the point here. You you might actually have the the item that goes to the market well ahead of the person who has the better idea, quote unquote. Right. Uh, and because you know how to get it to market or you're lucky or you're smart or you, whatever you actually become. And we have m- numerous examples of this right. in U S history. So a minute ago you used the word idea. And I think we ought to, we ought to drill down on that for a second, because sometimes you'll hear people say, Oh, you can't, you know, it's wrong that you can patent an idea or that you can copyright an idea. Well, you can't patent or copyright an idea, right? You can only patent or copyright for copyright, you can only copyright a specific iteration, right? Expression. A specific poem, right? right. Or a specific song lyric or something like that. And for a patent, it's a specific invention. So, I mean, you know, we're recording this podcast at the point in the COVID-19 pandemic where people are getting vaccinated finally. And no one could patent the idea of a vaccine for COVID-19, right? So what we have right now is we have four or five different patented vaccines, all for the same malady. And the fact that one company got out there and patented the first one didn't stop anybody else from coming along and patenting others that are different. They couldn't steal the exact same molecule or the exact same manufacturing technique, but they could patent a different way of addressing the problem. And in fact, two of them are very similar. I don't know the science enough to describe right, it. Right. Um, I, I think of it as sending a small computer into your body to reprogram your cells. Right, right. Uh, there's two that go that approach, uh, as sloppy as that explanation was. And then there are two that do the old school vaccine approach that uh, give you a little bit of it and so you'll build the immunity. Mm-hmm. And yet all four are on the market and being right. sold today right. uh, and all for the exact same end result. Yeah. So I, I really think it's important to stress this because this is a common objection. When you grant a patent on something, you're not granting a patent on an idea and you're not giving anybody a monopoly on a category of things. You're just giving them a temporary monopoly on the specific thing that they invented, that they patented. I, and, I, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. Uh, I like copyright as a great example here because mm-hmm. I think uh, it's easier to, to grasp at some level. Uh, so let's say romance novels. You can't copyright romance right. novels. Yeah. You can copyright it, and I should have picked a category I know something yeah, I was about. Yeah, I was just going to say, read a lot of romance novels, do you? But you can't, you can't uh, copyright what, uh, I can't remember the name of the woman who's written these books about the Scottish guy and the woman traveling through history. I'm not going to uh, be of any Out- help Outlander to you there. Outlander is okay. the, the okay. TV show. But, okay. but uh, uh, no, it's not her. But uh, <laughs> uh, the, you, you couldn't do that exact same story, but you could have a romance novel that involves time travel and involves a guy in Scotland Mm -hmm. and a woman from England, that would all be okay. You just can't use the exact same language in the exact same words that the author has used in expressing her notion of a romance novel. And so this is why I kind of chafe when critics of, of patents, for instance, say that patents discourage innovation, right? Well, you know what? They didn't discourage the innovation of COVID-19 vaccines. And they don't discourage the innovation of anything. In fact, they encourage innovation because of the disclosure of the invention. The only thing they do is stop someone else from stealing the thing that you created or that you invented. So that's that's the problem with that objection to IP. Now, there are other objections that you'll hear about IP. Some of the real sort of people who are philosophically opposed to IP 
had this idea somehow that like all knowledge and all information belongs to everyone. And somehow when you create a right in intellectual property, it's like you're taking it away from people, you know? It is, it's, you know, it's sort of like when they settled the prairie and they staked out property claims, you know, and everyone had a right to that property until someone staked out a claim and now only one person did. So there's a sense in which that land was taken away from the commons, you know, in this view. Um, but that's also kind of nutty because what IP does is it rewards and encourages the creation of things that never existed before. I mean, you can't make new land, but you can constantly be innovating new innovations and new ideas. So you're not taking anything away from anyone by the fact that you created something new. It's the default condition is not all this innovation and all this knowledge just laying around everywhere. Uh, it takes effort. It takes work. It takes creativity and innovation to produce it. Well, and that's why we don't allow uh, copywriting or patenting of facts. Right. Like, although the, uh, it, I totally agree, they, they tend to conflate everything as mm -hmm. being one level of knowledge, I guess. Right. Uh, the, the, what you are protecting with intellectual property is an expression of typically some combination of those facts then deployed in such a way as to do something. Yeah. A lot of cases, entertainment. Right. Um, in other cases, scientific advancement. Uh, but whatever it is, that that bit, that that uh, magical pixie dust mm -hmm. is the only thing that is getting protected. And that is going back to your opening here, the fruits of your labor right. and the fruits of your mental abilities. Um, and that is why that gets protected. Not all those other facts, not all those other ideas. It's just that particular expression. I'm very fond of uh, reminding people. And we hit this point when we did an earlier policy basics podcast about why socialism doesn't work. I'm very fond of reminding people that you can't distribute something until you first create it. Right. You, Something has to exist before it can be distributed, right? And this is one of the big problems with socialism is that it focuses so much on who gets how much of what, but it doesn't really encourage that anything be produced in the first place, right? And so this objection to intellectual property protection reminds me very much of that sort of, that mistake people have when they think socialism works, right? You, you, can't just, you have to also incentivize the creation of things before you can start focusing on how are they allocated or how are they distributed. And so again, the brilliance of the IP system is that it does both. It incentivizes the creation of new things, but it also incentivizes the distribution and the allocation of things. And I'm reminded of how, you know, when a book goes out of copyright, very often it also goes out of print and like disappears because once a book goes out of copyright, okay, great. It's in the public domain. That's wonderful. But who has an incentive to produce it? Who has an incentive to print it and sell it? and market it and advertise it. No one does because it's in the public domain. So that's not to say that the public domain is not important, but the public domain is not the default condition to which intellectual property protection is a violation. You know, the, the default condition is people creating and owning the fruits of their labor. And then after a certain amount of time, the public domain becomes the exception to that sort of ownership. I think there's a few other points we ought to hit on intellectual property, I think, that are really important. Uh, one is that as countries develop stronger IP protection, they generally attract more foreign direct investment, and it helps for that country's economy to grow, and it facilitates the transfer of new knowledge to that country. And so this is one of the reasons why the United States not only 
why it's not only important that we have a strong IP system, but that we encourage our trading partners to develop strong IP protections as well. Not simply so that they respect the intellectual property rights of Americans, but also, frankly, for their own benefit, so that their economies can grow and so that they can gain new knowledge and so that they can attract more foreign direct investment. At least that's the legit way to do it. Now, we know that there's a problem. A lot of the focus has been on China lately, on this idea of theft of intellectual property, right? Uh, stealing patents, stealing technology, stealing innovation through, through cyber theft and uh, corporate espionage and all kinds of things like that. And I think for, for all the ways that the Trump administration was wrong on trade, uh, this is one of the things that they were right about, is putting the focus on the real problem of having American innovation stolen by one of our global competitors. And so that's why we have advocated one of the great things about trade agreements, frankly, is that they can be used as lever levers to get other countries to adopt stronger intellectual property protections and to respect ours more. Uh, China is a great example on both of those. So we've known for decades, literally decades, what China was doing, particularly in the technology industry. And by that, I mean information technology. So think Cisco uh, famously, but uh, think other forms of uh, hardware, for example, um, and software uh, that China was uh, stealing. And they did it in a semi-legitimate way even. And that is that if you wanted to sell in China and you wanted to have a, a base for sales, let's say, in China, uh, so you were going to open a Chinese corporation to be able to do that, uh, that company... Uh, by law has to be 51, it's like 50, maybe it's 50.1, but 51% owned by a Chinese national. And then second law is that, uh, the, the second relevant law is that if in fact you are a Chinese national or a Chinese citizen, or if you're a company that is organized in China, then you must obey the party, not the country, the party. And at this point, now you just become a, a part of the communist party of China and this, and so what happens is the intellectual property just gets taken away fairly legally at that point. Mm. Uh, but it's still a complete abuse to anything we would, I mean, it's called what that's clever theft. Like it's not, yeah. it's not legitimate. Um, and that's been happening for decades. It, it's a really good point that, um, some companies have been truly just ripped off of their innovation through cyber theft and stuff like that. But a lot of companies that complain about Chinese theft of their intellectual property, willingly signed it away that, right as part of the terms of being able to do business in that country right signed it away with i mean i would uh, to take their side for a second i would say i think most people didn't think such an egregious abuse right. would would happen yeah. uh with your quote partner but yet yeah. there it was yeah uh and so we're talking about chinese piracy but i think we we should also talk at least for a moment about just piracy and counterfeiting in general and why that's problematic because if you really do buy, as we would like to persuade you to do, if you buy into the idea that intellectual property is important, that it's the foundation of a knowledge economy, then what that means is that jobs and industries are created and depend on that IP protection uh, as a foundation of the industry, whether it's music or movies and TV production or whether it's, you know, biotech and pharmaceuticals or advanced, you know, aircraft engineer. I mean, just about everything in the U.S. economy at its foundation has some basics in intellectual property. There's something that's copyrighted or patent that's being leveraged, right? And so when you have widespread theft, 
knockoffs of patented goods, knockoffs of trademark goods. Good for find some way to mention trademark in here, right? Um, when you have widespread theft of uh, recorded music or movies or TV shows or increasingly streaming piracy, that you're taking away the legitimate profits of that company or that industry or that owner or that content. And the people's jobs depend on that. I mean, if you're taking millions, if you're taking hundreds of millions of dollars out of the music industry or the movie industry, those are people who had jobs that are going to lose them or who would have jobs otherwise. So there's a real cost to any economy, not just the American economy, but there's a real cost to any economy that's dependent on intellectual property when there is widespread intellectual property theft. And so that's why we think it is a legitimate thing for the government to provide at least a framework where the owners of intellectual property have a chance of protecting their property, prosecuting people who steal their intellectual property and things like that. Yeah. Government shouldn't work any differently here than if a thief busted into your house and uh, stole whatever they were going to steal from your house. Uh, Government should have the same kind of structure and ability for companies to defend their property rights um, in that legal system. I'll add to uh, to the, the urgency, I guess, in this area, uh, by noting that a lot of piracy these days, it's not, I mean, you know, go back 20 years, maybe I'm just picking a time arbitrarily where it was individuals, uh, maybe kids out on a lark or, you know, whatever, who were ripping off. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the, the big problem today is this is mostly organized crime. Yeah. So we're not, not only is it bad that they're stealing, right? So they're, they're, they're ripping off not just a company, they're ripping off the workers. They're, they're frankly ripping off the price, uh, me, because the price you and I will have to pay will go up. will be uh, higher, right? That's right. Yeah. But they are, they are also then taking those ill-gotten gains and then funneling them into illicit activities. Mm. So this is, to me, it's bad all around. There is no positive. Uh, people used to try to paint this as a positive, right. somehow the, a, a redistributionist view of the world. Well, yeah. you know, the music industry, they don't need all these profits anyway. Uh, and so I'm just taking this so I can listen to it when I work out or whatever. Okay, great. I mean that you're still a thief, but okay. But this is much bigger than that, much worse than that. So obviously based on this discussion, you can tell that we at the Institute for Policy Innovation think that intellectual property protection is really important. And so this is why we decided some years ago to add intellectual property policy to the set of issues that we concentrate on, because we want the U S to continue to have an innovative, globally competitive economy. We, we want to be the place in the world where things are invented and created and developed. We're one of the few think tanks that has really made a deep dive into IP policy, frankly. And I'm quite proud of the work, Bartlett, that you've done and that I've done and that Dr. Matthews has done and some of our other authors as well. And one of the things we did just almost 20 years ago was we went to the trouble of becoming an accredited organization with the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. WIPO, as it's known, administers a number of treaties that countries have voluntarily signed for the protection of trademarks and patents and copyrights and things like that. And it was as a result of getting involved at WIPO that we found out that there was such a thing as International World IP Day, something that we didn't know about before. And no one in Washington, D.C. had been doing any kind of World IP Day event or anything like that, even though the IP industries are well represented in D.C., you know, with with their government affairs and things like that. So we started 16 years ago doing a World IP Day policy event in Washington, D.C. We're recording this podcast in 2021. 
And in 2021, we'll be doing our 16th annual event. In fact, we're doing two. We're doing one on April 26th. In 2021, April 26th is a Monday. And so we'll be doing one on April 26th about patents and vaccines. And then we'll be doing another one on April 29th that's focused on streaming piracy, which we mentioned earlier just a few more minutes ago. So if you happen to be hearing this podcast in 2021, uh, prior to April 26th, uh, you could go to our website, you could register for one or both of those events, and we would love to have you join us. As we have said several times now, it, it's a critical issue. We think it's very important, and we think it's really important that at least once a year, uh, some attention is drawn to the importance of intellectual property. Now, you can find out a lot more about intellectual property policy at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and give us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can share it with your friends as well. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.